Support for the It's a Crime O'Clock Somewhere podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Their products are precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped's performance package is the ultimate men's hygiene bundle. Join over, join over 7 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off plus free worldwide shipping with the code CRIMEOCLOCK at manscaped.com. If my math is correct, that's about 14 million balls. The Performance Package 4.0 has arrived and oh man, it is a game changer. Inside this package, you'll find their Lawn Mower 4.0 Trimmer, Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, Crop Reviver Toner, Performance Boxer Briefs, and a Travel Bag to hold your goodies. First off, the Lawn Mower 4.0. This trimmer is the future of grooming and dare I say the greatest ball trimmer ever. Their fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents stink thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology. The Lawn Mower 4.0 is waterproof and also has a 4000K LED spotlight you need a more precise shave. Because this trimmer is waterproof, you can say goodbye to the mess on the bathroom floor. You thought that was good, but want to take your grooming game even further to the next level? The Performance Package 4.0 also includes this Weed Whacker nose and ear hair trimmer. The Weed Whacker is also waterproof and provides proprietary skin-safe technology, which helps reduce nicks, snags, and tugs in those delicate nose holes. Their Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Ball Toner will change the way you approach your hygiene routine. Trust me when I say this, fellas, your balls will thank you. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their Performance Package 4.0, the Manscaped Boxers and the Shed Travel Bag. Bring your comfort and boxers to another level. My husband loves the boxers, and I have ended up stealing the travel bag to use for extra storage. It's time to take care of yourself, so go to manscaped.com and get 20% off plus free shipping with the code CRIMEOCLOCK. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code CRIMEOCLOCK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code CRIMEOCLOCK. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. back to another episode of the It's a Crime O'Clock Somewhere podcast. This is episode 109. Today I'll be talking about the murder of a 55-year-old woman named Monica Schmeier. My sources for today's episode are an episode of Forensic Files 2, season 2, episode 8, titled The Orange Shorts, Oxygen.com, PenLive.com, YorkDispatch.com, and MyCrimeLibrary.com. As usual, all of my sources will be linked in today's show notes. Up next, a desperate woman struggles to survive. She was trying to get to the phone. Hard to say if that was before or after she was shot. Police have a solid suspect, but he's got an airtight alibi. This is not your prototypical killer. We were looking everywhere to try to get to the bottom of this mystery. This takes place in York County, Pennsylvania. On March 31st, 2010, a 911 operator received a phone call, but there was no one on the other end. They assumed it was an accident. They called back, but it was a busy signal. The call was coming from Monica Schmeier's home. Monica was 55. Her home was located in a very remote area. When the police arrived and announced themselves, there was no response. Monica was found on her living room floor inside her home. She was pronounced dead and had been shot. Next to Monica's body was a single 32-millimeter shell casing. There was no sign of a struggle, so the police wondered if Monica had killed herself. 
However, they ruled that out quickly when the police found signs that Monica had been beaten. She had blood around her mouth and a blood trail leading to her body. She also had blood on the soles of her feet, on her socks. Monica had gotten up to run to the phone. In her last moment, she had called 911 at 2.52 p.m. Monica's purse was found inside the home. No electronics had been stolen, but the police did find several white envelopes filled with cash. Monica didn't trust banks, so she kept her cash in her home. It was clear that Monica's murder was personal. Monica had met her future husband, John Schmeyer, in the 1970s while they were both attending medical school. They had two daughters, and Monica gave up her career to be a stay-at-home mom. John owned a successful ophthalmology business. Throughout their relationship, John had developed a wandering eye, and Monica had found out about it. Monica was Catholic and didn't want a divorce. She eventually signed divorce papers but still wanted to be with John. The police notified John about his wife's murder, but he had an unusual reaction according to them. It seemed more like an act. He didn't have tears and would go between crying and talking. John told the police that he wanted to move on from Monica, but she didn't. The police also learned that John paid alimony in cash because Monica didn't trust banks. She would set aside the cash for her bills and have John write checks for her utilities. John said he had nothing to do with Monica's murder and said he had an alibi. He said he had been at Hooters with a group of friends who called themselves the Orange Short Society. They would meet at Hooters every week. This group confirmed that John was there on the day of Monica's murder, but he still wasn't ruled out because the police thought maybe he could have hired someone to do it. Monica's autopsy confirmed that she died from a close-range gunshot to the head. The 32 millimeter from Monica's body seemed to match the shell casing from the crime scene. It was examined but the bullet was damaged. It still had unique markings on it. Monica's home was very remote, but a neighbor had seen a man walking in the direction of her home shortly before the 911 call. And about 20 minutes later, the man was seen again walking away from the home. The neighbor said the man was walking with a purpose, had a white envelope in his hand. He described the male as white, 5'9", with a medium build. A second witness also confirmed to see a similar-looking man. They said he had walked up a hill away from Monica's home, and then he was seen driving away in a silver work van. The witness wasn't able to see any features or markings on the van that stuck out to him. He, has, he hadn't gotten a license plate number either. Several businesses around the area were looked at for any surveillance cameras. A bank in a town about three miles from Monica's home captured the silver van heading in the direction of Monica's home. It was just 15 minutes before the murder. The van was then seen heading in the opposite direction after the murder. The video was very grainy and wasn't able to pick up a license plate number. The police re-examined their interviews with John's friends and members of the Orange Short Society. The members had been joined by a woman named Sarah Powell who was engaged to one of the members named Tim Jacoby. Tim hadn't been at the meeting on the day of the murder. Tim was 5'9", white, and had a medium build. He was 37 and worked as an engineer. He had a history of armed robbery, he had robbed a jewelry store, and pled no contest. He received no jail time. Records showed that he owned a 32mm Caltech semi-automatic pistol. Tim didn't seem to know Monica, but knew of her through John. The police wondered if John had paid Tim to kill her. The records from Tim's work showed that he drove a silver work van. It also showed that it was the same make and model from the one on the surveillance footage. A search warrant was obtained for Tim's home. Sarah threw up during the search as she was obviously devastated. The murder weapon wasn't found in the home, but the police did find a 32 millimeter Caltech barrel. 
The inside of the barrel had been damaged from someone scratching it with a tool. Test bullets were shot from the damaged gun, but the scratches had made it impossible to see if there were any unique markings on the bullets. Tim often went to his parents' farm for target practice. The police searched the property. Inside, they found a receipt, ammunition, and a box from the Caltech gun. The gun itself wasn't found. Near the area where Tim would shoot for target practice, the police found four shell casings. The manufacturer was Spear, just like the casing found in Monica's home. Markings on the shell casings were confirmed to be similar to the ones found in Monica's living room. Tim Jacoby was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. The police dug into John's financial records, and there were no records that John had paid Tim. The police started to believe that Tim knew that Monica had cash and targeted her because John had complained about it all the time, which Sarah confirmed that John did complain about having to pay alimony. Tim went to the house and didn't think that Monica would fight back. Tim hit her in the face and shot her in the head while she tried to call 911. In October 2014, Tim Jacoby was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death, and he remains on death row. According to PenLive.com, Sarah had actually testified that John would discuss the relationship he had with his ex-wife. Sarah also had seen a cut on Tim's hand on the day of the murder. Obviously, there is still suspicion that John was involved, but it could also be true that Tim did it all on his own. He knew from John that Monica kept money around the home, and he took the opportunity to kill Monica and take the money for himself. My book recommendation for this week is People to Follow by Olivia Worley. A reality show on a remote Caribbean island, 10 teen influencers, one dead body. Welcome to In Real Life, the hot new reality show that forces social media's reigning kings and queens to unplug for three weeks and go live without any filters. IRL is supposed to be the opportunity of a lifetime watched closely by legions of loyal followers. But for these rising stars, including Elodie, an Instagram model with an impulsive streak, Kira, a child star turned fitness influencer, Logan, a disgraced TikTok celeb with a secret, and Max, a YouTuber famous for exposés on his fellow creators, it's about to turn into a nightmare. When the production crew fails to show up and one of their own meets a violent end, these nine little influencers find themselves stranded with a dead body and no way to reach the outside world. When they start receiving messages from a mysterious sponsor threatening to expose their darkest secrets, they realize that they've been lured into a deadly game and one of them might be pulling the strings. With the body count rising and cameras tracking their every move, the creators must figure out who is trying to get them canceled, like literally before their number one follower strikes again. Whether we like it or not, influencers are a common trend, whether it's on social media or various reality shows. I definitely didn't know if I was going to like this book or not. It was okay. It was pretty good. Many of the characters are, shall we say, self-absorbed and not likable, but I think that was the point. I also like that there were twists and turns. I definitely thought I was not going to enjoy this book, but I did, and I give it an 8 out of 10. I also like watching trashy reality shows, so. Thank you again to Manscaped for sponsoring today's episode. For 20% off plus free shipping, use code CRIMEOCLOCK. Please subscribe to my blog, follow me on Instagram and Twitter, email me at itscrimeoclocksomewhere at gmail.com, find me a coffee, and please leave me a 5-star rating and review if you're enjoying this podcast. I'll be back next week with an all-new case and book recommendation. And remember, it's crime o'clock somewhere.